what aren't you willing to eat out of a vending machine? Because now I'm very curious if you're both like, oh yeah, smoothies, no questions. I'm feeling very uncomfortable with the term wet food. It's, it like reminds me of dog food. It's like dry food or like wet food? food. What, so you're saying you wouldn't drink a smoothie from this machine, Jory? Absolutely not. Ariel? I would, yeah. yeah. I would too. I mean, Ariel eats a lot of garbage we know. Yeah, so. I mean, my wake and bake it's <laughs> I'll lean into it. This is well-established lore on this show that Ariel will eat all sorts of garbage. <laughs> Welcome to Another Bite, where we rewatch the most innovative and, you know, intriguing pitches from Shark Tank. I'm Jory, and I'm joined by Ariel. Hi, everyone. And John. How's it going? They say that money can't buy happiness, but it can definitely buy you one epic vacation. Today's episode covers products that will help you travel in style or at least spend a lot of money trying to do so. And before you say, hey, Jory, isn't one of the products like an automated smoothie machine? I mean, where else are you going to buy a semi-automatic robotic smoothie besides an airport? But you know, <laughs> you'll see what I mean. But before we get into all of that, I actually have an ads joke for you. Ooh. So why did the ad become a magician? Because it wanted to disappear without notice, but still leave a lasting impression. So here's one of them. So first in the tank, we have Trunkster. And Trunkster is brought to us by founders Gaston and Jesse. And they're asking for $1.4 million for a 5% equity stake in their company. That is a, yep, $28 million valuation. Boo. And I want. Tell me you overvalue your company without telling me. (laughs) The virtual eyebrow raise was felt. So Trunkster, it is the world's first and only roll-top suitcase with a bunch of smart features. You gotta describe roll-top here. That's the thing, is I can't really think of how to describe this suitcase. Dear listener, (laughs) did your grandparents, perchance, have a roll-top desk? You know, one of those gigantic old desks where Mm -hmm. you could pull a cover down. Today I learned. That's what this thing is. It's got this big (laughs) flexible front jewelry. It slides up and down. It's weird. The conveyor belt that goes nowhere. It's like a tank tread. (laughs) Yes. But you like lift it up to get inside your suitcase instead of unzipping your suitcase. It's like a suitcase that opens in a fun new way where the top kind of rolls down and voila, it's all your goods in your suitcase. It comes with a handle scale, a proximity sensor. It's got some patents pending, weighs less than eight pounds. So it is a suitcase of the future. Does it have power? It does with a removable battery, which is really important because now you can't go on planes with batteries attached. Mm -hmm. They blow up. You even think about that. So thinking about our pitch and our product, I'm already getting some like vibes, but what are we thinking? (laughs) The suitcase market is actually a pretty interesting market. It's a $5 billion market in the U.S. I think in particular, it's ripe for disruption. And I think that if you were going to disrupt the suitcase industry, you would consider a premium product. I think you'd consider a design-forward product, maybe something with some full-feature accessories on it. But this is not the company that I'm going to bet on to do it by any means. This suitcase is going to get so broken It is just going to get crushed. The roll top front is just going to smush in on the very first time you take it anywhere. The digital screen is going to get smashed. They haven't even shipped a single suitcase yet. So God knows if this thing even works. And they want a $28 million valuation. No way. For those reasons, I'm out. (laughs) 
<laughs> I agree. I think for me, what I thought would have been really interesting is they talked about the proximity sensor. If they had some kind of offering where it was like a remote that you could control and it will follow you essentially, like, you know, how they have that for shopping carts and stuff mm. that would have made me feel more comfortable to make a $400 purchase for luggage. It wasn't enough uniqueness for me to justify spending for the roll top suitcase. <laughs> So when you say proximity like that, are you envisioning like it follows you around like R2-D2? Like it's just like an automated rolling. They have that for golf clubs. Oh, they do? Yeah, there are roller carts for golf clubs now that will just follow you. And have you used one? No, no. I have a child, so golf is not something that happens frequently for me. (laughs) Not anymore. But I see it on the internet and think, wouldn't that be nice? (laughs) So this is a prototype. They are very firmly in their pre-selling phase. And the only reason that they're talking about a $28 million valuation is because they raised $1.4 million on their Kickstarter. So it was like a very successful crowdfunded travel campaign. But they're still in their pre-selling phase. As they were going over all of the things that the suitcase could do, I was very confused about who this suitcase was marketed for. I was trying to find like, what is this buyer persona? Who is specifically the target audience for such a niche suitcase with such a specific set of features? So are they too niche or is this actually something that they could generally market to the public? I actually think what would pose the most for success is taking more of that niche approach for like business travelers or frequent flyers and even looking to bolster the brand through a partnership. So can you get one year free TSA pre-check if you also like purchase this luggage? There's really unique ways that they can kind of enter into this market and provide that initial value. What do you think would be the most strategic in this case for Trunkster? I would sell it. I wouldn't try to compete against like this market in this space. Mm. You know, on the vertical versus horizontal approach, the cost of doing a verticalized strategy is that you're just limiting the size of your market, right? So you're making a bet as a business leader that by focusing more narrowly, you can create a more tailored product that'll resonate better with your target customer and you'll be able to market it in more resonant ways. Your TSA pre-check partnership's a brilliant idea, right? Because you're like, oh, business travelers want pre-check. Like those two things go together perfectly. Whereas the pre-check benefit might not be something that appeals to every single traveler. So they might not be willing to pay a premium price point for you know, this product just to get a benefit like that. Right. There are advantages, but there's costs. Having a smaller TAM, having less scale advantage, all those things can really stack up against a vertical competitor. Mm-hmm. And so I think there's like some questions you kind of got to ask yourself. I think you've got to number one, understand whether like the large horizontal players are underserving a market. Is Samsonite not serving the market for business travel? If they're underserving a niche, then like absolutely, that's a great way to just like lean in and try and get like a wedge between a large incumbent or not. You did mention that this is an industry that's long overdue for disruption. Do you still think leaning into a more niche vertical approach would allow for disruption? The word disruption gets thrown around a ton. Disruption is traditionally defined by Clay Christensen was all about the idea of lower cost, good enough products. Like that's what the theory of disruption is, is that if you're an incumbent player, basically you get comfortable, you get large, you're charging a high price, you keep investing in features so that your product can serve these more lucrative customers who have more needs. And that leaves an opening for a new player to come in with a good enough option at a lower price point. Mm -hmm. And boy, that can be really hard for an incumbent because the incumbent can't afford to actually serve that down market customer at the same cost structure that a smaller player can do. But I think in the context of this particular market, I do think that if a vertical is underserved, 
I think it's an angle in to start disrupting, definitely. It was interesting, though, because I felt like the entire differentiator that this brand kept leaning on is, you know, we are sick of these big brands that don't have a story. So we invented one. There was no story. There was no story. It was just that they invented a story that would maybe sort of kind of speak to millennials, which is also a very different audience than your business traveler. Sure, there's a Venn diagram there. I don't think it's a circle. (laughs) There was nothing about this that screamed disruption besides we're going after the millennials and that's what makes us different because now we have a story, which anyone could just make a story. And then in terms of cost, it was like not that different from things on the market. Mm -hmm. Granted, like this was in 2015. That just reaffirms my point even more. $3.95 in 2015, forget about it. Not happening. You bring up a good point, Jory, and I feel like even though this was from 2015, a lot of businesses are falling into kind of a similar trap when they're like, oh, we need to reach out to Gen Z. That's just our story Mm -hmm. is Gen Mm -hmm. Z. And that is why it's so important to make sure that you're creating a unique position and an actual story that evokes from an emotional perspective. So that way consumers can really tie into you. And besides just saying, this is our audience. Stories for the sake of stories, man, that sucks. So, you know, here's the thing. I think that the founders here probably knew they were overshooting a lot, but I do think that fundamentally they thought their business was worth it, despite where it is in its like pre-selling phase. You know, they were like, we're projecting $2 million this year, $3 million next year. And it kind of left me wondering, do you think that knowing where like the luggage industry went since 2015, do you think that like maybe the situation here for all it's like a smart suitcase was that our founders came to Shark Tank a little too early? I think it was intentionally early, my hot take. Mm. I think this is more of like a push of like, we have these prototypes out for suitcases to kind of increase awareness. We see so many founders that come in with these valuations that are very value or perception-based, and that's pretty biased sometimes by the founders, as we've seen. So the $28 million valuation, while it's really high, didn't necessarily surprise me in terms of like, we're trying to like shake this up. And it just shows me that they really over-inflate their sense of value that they can bring to the market. Yeah, like I couldn't tell if they were just anchoring. Mm-hmm. I mean, if they were anchoring... So this is a concept in negotiation of anchoring, which is like whatever number you put out as your first number anchors the other party towards where they mm-hmm. should end up. So mm-hmm. if you put out a high first number, that anchors high. Got it. So from there, as you go back and forth in negotiations, you're likely to end up much higher than you would have if you had gone out with a more fair starting point. I couldn't tell if they were just anchoring or they were just full of themselves. Anchoring 28 million? Well, this is the thing. I think it's just full of themselves. <laughs> Evaluation for a company is supposed to be based on some sort of actual fundamentals. Mm -hmm. This is the thing. And tech has kind of confused that situation because in tech, often it takes a large investment of capital in order to get some sort of bigger return. And the upside in a lot of tech investing can be very high, even though most VCs don't do very well with tech investing because the actual winners, the actual 10X winners are so few. And I think that that's just kind of like bloated people's perception of how valuations work. And the reality is valuations are supposed to be based on some fundamentals. How much money do you make? What is the margin on that money? And basically how much debt do you have? To me, it's not that they went on Shark Tank too early. Like if they're willing to give up 30 or 40% of the company, it wasn't too early at all. Yeah. But that's not where they were. They were only willing to give up a small percent of the company. I think regardless of their anchoring technique, it caused a bit of rough waves with our sharks. The sharks and the founders were like talking over each other and ignoring questions <laughs> until Kevin was like, silence. <laughs> but 
Ultimately, there were some offers on the table. I think there was some hesitance based on how the founders were valuing themselves. You had Robert with a 30% offer, Kevin with a 37% offer. But then we actually got the offer that got the founders really excited. Mark and Lori went in this together for 5% for $1.4 million with payback in 24 months. And if it wasn't paid back, equity was doubled and there was a $1 in perpetuity when the money was paid back. I'm surprised that they got a deal. I mean, I'm not surprised that it was structured that way. So that way our sharks had a little more insurance going into this. But I wouldn't be surprised that this was a handshake deal. Mark and Lori basically said, we like this market. We like this product. There's no way we're just like straight up doing the deal they want. Can we find a way to de-risk giving them this money? Mm-hmm. I was trying to like come up with like an elephant pun to translate this into our update section. But you know, okay, that actually made me have a bone to pick because it's called Trunkster. Its icon is an elephant. And then the branding is so random that they never bring up the elephant thing again. Ariel, do you have a thought on that? I was very frustrated as well. I'm like, from a branding perspective, at least make it a fun color. Offer different color variants or something to help subtly reinforce your brand. You don't need to have your name up front and center on every single thing. But if you leverage some colors within your color scheme or your brand persona, that's a really nice, subtle way to tie back into the brand. Well, the elephant in the room (laughs) is that Trunkster was a handshake deal. It was a handshake deal that actually fell through. Not surprised. Mm. You had good intuition there, Ariel. I don't mean you. Oh, well, just to be clear. (laughs) I just like when I'm right. (laughs) Okay. So here's the thing, too, about Trunkster. They have still not fulfilled all of their Kickstarter 2015 pre-orders. Oh, no. That's like seven or eight years ago. (laughs) Yep. So some people received their products and they had like really mixed reviews about it. But most of the backers actually never received their luggage and have floated the idea of a class action lawsuit. They have gone completely dark online. Mm -hmm. So it's pretty safe to say that Trunkster is out of business. Who knows in the next couple weeks if we could get fun updates. But from all we could find, it is no longer in business. So next in the tank, we have Blenny Blends, and Blenny Blends comes to us from brothers Peter and Stuart, and they are asking for $250,000 for 6% of their business, which is a $4.16 million valuation. Blenny Blends is a vending machine. It is an automated smoothie shop that essentially it operates like a vending machine. You swipe your card and it delivers a real fruit smoothie right to the kiosk. And the problem it's really trying to solve for is that the time that business folks or people at the airport, in my example, they're on a restricted time schedule. And like the typical snacks from a vending machine, you know, your chips and soda, they're not going to keep you running. They're not going to keep you going. So These brothers have come up with a way to deliver fresh fruit smoothies using unattended retail. And their slogan is, all's well that blends well. Cute. And thinking, (laughs) cute, already know where Ariel's going to land on this one. (laughs) But thinking about our pitch and our product and our founders, initial thoughts? I like the branding. It's fun. It's colorful. Very easy to kind of stand out if you were in an airport setting 
The only thing I didn't love about it, I actually think this would serve better in more community spaces than it would in an airport. Like I'm still going to go to Jamba Juice or Smoothie King or whatever, you know, is available as I'm like waiting for a flight. But I thought this could be a really great concept for places where there's like food deserts and folks Mm. do not have access to fresh fruits and vegetables. So I would actually take this product and I would think of an entirely different industry to run this in. I think this is absolutely incredible. I love smoothies. Okay, so if you have the option in an airport to go to a brick and mortar smoothie, you have your smoothie barista there versus going to a vending machine, which would you prefer? Well, that assumes every airport has a smoothie king. I go to a lot of airports without smoothie <laughs> kings, Ariel. Yeah. And I'm not sure airport would be my top space. I would go to offices. Hmm. I think offices is 100% the move. Yeah. Their price point on this, they're charging $30,000 for a smoothie machine. Like that is not a small cost item. And I feel like actually like companies and corporations that are looking to provide perks and benefits, but maybe don't have the capital to hire a full team of baristas to make smoothies would love to give their employees smoothies. I'm so bullish on it and really would want to find a way to invest if I could. Okay. I don't know if it's because it's liquid and I understand that it's sealed in like pre-packaged vacuum sealed containers. Mm. I understand that these are shelf stable smoothies that are pre-bagged, but like the moment something rips, the moment something expires, the moment that those companies who were so excited to buy this machine actually don't spend time keeping it up, Mm -hmm. I could just see the health risk. And I don't know what it was that kind of made me just keep thinking of all the things that could go wrong, but I'm not sure I would trust smoothies from a vending machine. Yeah. It's like getting a botulism topper on your smoothie. Exactly. And like botulism. (laughs) You're like a little more, please. A little more botulism right on there. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I am definitely looking past the potential foodborne illness concerns here and trusting that they've found a path to that. I mean, look, smoothie in a bag a little dicey, just, you know, from the way it sounds. <laughs> yeah. So I guess one thing that also confused me beyond like the smoothies in the bag is I guess I just didn't understand what these founders were trying to do. So, okay, this technology is licensed from Canada mm-hmm. and they have exclusive rights to this technology with the opportunity to eventually buy out the patent and the IP, but they have exclusive rights for the U.S. Okay, I understand that. But then it's like, so they own the entire supply chain, so smoothies in a bag, all the way to manufacturing and producing and selling these machines. Are they trying to put this up and maintain the smoothie machines themselves? Are they trying to sell the smoothie machines? Are they trying to ultimately sell just the smoothies in a bag? I just felt like as they were starting to unpack what this was as a business, I was like, okay, so you're selling this. No, just kidding. You are selling this. No, okay. I just, I couldn't understand what this business actually was the more they started talking. Mm -hmm. Jory, they're selling the smoothie experience. You know, they're (laughs) selling the smoothie lifestyle. Automated to you. I think that they want to be in the business of largely servicing and supplying these machines. Mm -hmm. And they are hoping that the businesses that want to put the machines in will actually purchase the machines. I think that's one of the big challenges of this business. It's a large capital expenditure business. And we don't see a ton of these on Shark Tank because most of the time Shark Tank is about like cash flow businesses. And this is a big CapEx business where you have to put a lot of money in. Each machine costs Mm $20,000. So it's just a lot of money. And I think that they have no choice but to manufacture them Mm -hmm. and to produce them, but they do want to sell them and not have all of that inventory kind of on their 
balance sheet, that's not a good spot for them to be in is just to be like totally weighed down by a bunch of smoothie machines that like they own, they want to sell them. And then they want to be in the high margin business of servicing them and providing and supplying them. And this isn't the first time that we've seen a company where it's essentially a license, right? But I felt like with this in particular, it was more so a penetration play of like, okay, we are a business that exists in Canada. We want to introduce ourselves into the US. Let's get a few customers or airports that are loyal buyers and like kind of sold in and have to continue to purchase supply from us, which I feel like in the other products we viewed that were licenses may have been a little less focused around like introducing something new to a market. Well, the problem with their license agreement is that it's Mm time-based. So they have 15 years basically where they are the exclusive licensee of this product technology brand and all this stuff, which means that for them to maximize their profit, they need to move as fast as possible. Like time to market is everything if you have a time-based licensing agreement. And this is such an expensive product that they need a ton of money to move fast to market just to manufacture all the machines. So it's so expensive to make. And I think that's one of the real challenges here is that they're very likely to have to slow roll it into the market. And I have a bad feeling that just as they're about to be gaining traction, you know, 10 years in when they finally got all these machines deployed and they're starting to make real money on it, that they're going to come towards the end of their licensing agreement. Mm. And then, you know, they could lose everything. But it makes sense why they went on Shark Tank now, right? If you can get distribution and have like partners like Kevin O'Leary to kind of help accelerate that, that makes sense now. I had the same exact thought, Ariel. Yeah. Well, Lori and Daniel, we're really excited to jump on this product offering 250K for 35% with a line of credit of 500,000. So ultimately, yeah, they were able to seal the deal with Lori and Daniel. So smoothies for all. I will say this was a recent episode. Mm -hmm. This just happened in March. So there's not exactly an update. But before we get into that, I actually need to know. So it seems like my barrier to entry for vending machines is wet food products that are not soda or water. What is that for you? What aren't you willing to eat out of a vending machine? Because now I'm very curious if you're both like, oh yeah, smoothies, no questions. I'm feeling very uncomfortable with the term wet food. It's like, reminds me of dog food. It's like dry food or wet food. food. So you're saying you wouldn't drink a smoothie from this machine, Jory? Absolutely not. Ariel? I would. Yeah. Yeah, I would too. I mean, Ariel eats a lot of garbage we know. Yeah. I mean, my wake and bake. (laughs) I'll lean into it. This is well-established lore on this show that Ariel will eat all sorts of garbage. I think I would be fine with like fermented things. Like kombucha? No, that's a different, because that's probiotics and they're like alive and you have to keep it refrigerated. Like that maintenance worries me more. You know, so yeah, I guess I wouldn't eat yogurt from a vending machine. Yeah. If you just put a cup under and yogurt poured out, would you eat that? Yeah, like definitely not. But like, would you eat Froyo? Yeah. Yes. Which is what we do. Yeah. But you're weird about the yogurt, the room temperature version? I'm not. I would eat anything. I'm not sure I have a line. I have a line. What's the line? I've been researching because I've been wanting to go to Tokyo for like the longest time. That's what I was going to say. Yes. And the vending (laughs) machines there. Anytime there's a protein coming out of a vending machine and it's like room temperature or warm temperature, I have to pass. Yeah. Yeah. So like no potato salad. Well, I like my potato salad cold. <laughs> like I chicken salad. You know, I've been to Japan and I've seen all the vending machines, yeah. vegetables, crepes, fresh fish, all sorts of things. This is a 
That's the worst. But would you invest in the smoothie machine? I would if there was opportunity to negotiate maybe a little bit of a longer lifetime span, John. I think you had a good point of like, you get up and running in 10 years and then what? I like the way they did this deal. I think they did this deal right, which is if I was a shark, I would basically say, hey, I want a big equity chunk for some money. And then I'm going to give you a line of credit on some guaranteed rate so that you can go as fast as possible. I would not be surprised if they ended up taking another line of credit with them if it's going well and like extend that line of credit because I think they're just going to need a lot of capital. That makes sense. So last in the tank, we have Dermovia, Lace Your Face. And that comes to us from founders Anita and Mariella. And they're asking for $350,000 for 10% in their company, which is a $3.5 million valuation. And their product is Lace Your Face, which does sound violent. It's not. (laughs) It is an innovative design that allows you to multitask while you mask. So the problem that Dermovia is trying to solve is that sheet masks are slippery and they can fall off. And if you want to get that great serum on your face, what are you going to do? Well, you're going to buy a Lace Your Face, which is a cotton stretch fabric sheet mask that actually loops up around your ears and stays on your face. It's also interesting because unlike traditional sheet masks, this one is soaked with enough serum that you can actually use it twice. Mm. So it's like a slightly different innovation on a familiar product, but I can already tell we've got a hot take brewing. So I mean, to me, it just looks like a doily with ear holes cut out of it. It's just like smush a doily on your face. And that's what it looks like. A wet doily. I had the same exact impression as someone who purchases face masks. Yeah, it's it's sort of from a distance. It looks like you have paper mache on your face. Mm -hmm. The cotton is designed to look like lace. And so it's supposed to be chic and fun. It looks like you were at grandma's house and you took a doily off her table and put it over your face. I just have a little lukewarm take that I want to provide when it comes up to this. Turn up the heat a little, Ariel. I want it hotter. Boil that water. All right. Here's my hot take. If you are not offering a unique benefit or a unique kind of value or exclusive offering upfront in your marketing, you're not going to last long in an industry like the cosmetic industry where it's very, very competitive. They don't really explain why. Like, what are some of the value perks? It hooks up around your ear. Right. It stays on. I can literally get a jar from Sephora of 24K gold mask that I can put on for multiple uses for $85. Why do I want to spend $55 on something that the only value is that it's less cold than doing a face mask? That's literally the only difference. Here's why I actually think you're wrong. Four of these doily masks sell for $55. So a single Mm -hmm. mask is $15. And actually, that was something that I didn't even blink at. Hmm. And granted, this is 2018, so I get that there's like inflation things. But like Tatcha sells four sheet masks for $95. And Tatcha is an extremely popular Japanese Mm -hmm. skincare brand. Lamer sells five sheet masks for $190 and is one of Sephora's top selling products. But look at their ingredient list compared to what she was. But we don't know the ingredient list here, right? Mm -hmm. So we know that there is one of the founders is an esthetician, but I do think that there is something also different in the sheet mask experience Mm -hmm. versus like traditional masking. Sheet masks are usually full of very concentrated actives. That's why it can't stay on your face very long. It's also why it's discarded. The one thing that I will say about 
about this product that absolutely didn't make sense to me is the use twice use case. I think that's not going to actually fly in the skincare community because there is the bacterial implication. That to me was the only thing that I was like, that's a very strange differentiator. No one who sheet masks is going to want to put it back on their face. Yeah. And you leave it in your bathroom when you're doing your skincare routine and then you're like worried about all the other germs getting on it. Like... But in terms of like pricing and in terms of like this being potentially a more high end product, especially given that its current distribution strategy is in Nordstrom and Berries, which are typically more high end retailers, there was no initial red flags. I think it was actually, as you said, Ariel, entirely the marketing Mm -hmm. that is where this all fell apart because it was really unclear if this was trying to be a premium skincare brand, in which case it's actually on the cheaper side, or if it was trying to be more accessible, in which case it's outrageously expensive, right? And I think that just speaks to the broad spectrum of the skincare industry. It feels like almost every beauty brand and cosmetic brand is actually much more about the brand Mm -hmm. and what the brand Mm -hmm. believes and tries to convince you about their aspirations for your life. And it tries to tap into pop culture and become part of the zeitgeist. The thing I'm worried about with them is they're basically relying entirely on a functional benefit, Mm -hmm. which is like this thing hooks on your ears. I'm not sure that's going to get enough buyers, right? Like I think they would need to invest much more in their brand and their aspiration and what they believe and how they will bring it to market and the message and all that in order for them to actually gain traction. It's great that the founder has experience in this industry as like an esthetician, but I wish that she spoke more to like, this is a common challenge I see or SPF is becoming more popular. So we double infuse mm-hmm. our SPF masks. I feel like that crucial piece is missing. I also don't know a single person that uses sheet masks that's like horrified how they look. Like honestly, you don't care. Yeah, or you get the cute little panda ones or something, like the little fun-shaped ones. It's sort of like our trunkster case, right? Like they're making a problem, they're making a story out of one that doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. This could have been a lot more of a successful pitch and also just resonated with the skincare community a little bit more. That said, though, they're doing great. I know that we just like poked fun at the lace look, but you know, they're selling their masks at an 80% margin. They had mentioned that as of the Shark Tank deal, like they had a pending unit order of a million units. So they are selling them, you know, they're making 1.3 million as of this episode. Yeah. I mean, she nailed distribution. 80% margin is phenomenal. I think typically for the cosmetic industry, it usually starts at around 60%. So it's one of the higher end categories when you're going beauty shopping. But what did you guys think about $55 for four masks? Well, there's like two common pricing methods. There's a lot of other ways to like build pricing, but the generally accepted ways are basically you do pricing based on willingness to pay or you do pricing based on what's called cost plus. Hmm. In cost plus, you basically say, hey, there's a certain margin I have to hit in order for me to run my business. And I'm going to take whatever it costs me to create the product and to sell and market the product. And I'm going to add my margin on top of that. And that's what I'm going to charge. I mean, the other way, willingness to pay is totally just based on like whatever people will pay. And anytime you have a high margin product, like, you know, cosmetics or skincare, a lot of like software and stuff like that, you definitely go with the willingness to pay approach. And so to get willingness to pay, like you just need to understand how much people value your brand, the ingredients. I mean, you have to look at the competitive landscape much more both to understand how you want to signal to the market based on what you charge versus others. It sounds like they're actually coming in a bit low mm-hmm. on their pricing versus other premium, which means they're going to kind of be bucketed as mid-tier. Yeah. And so that could be a problem for them if they want to really have a high margin business here. 
Yeah. My only thing with like a value-based pricing approach is I just feel like it's so subjective. Like what a founder perceives as value of what someone would be willing to spend for a face mask by an esthetician versus just a regular face mask. I just, I actually thought they should go lower for what they're actually offering from a benefit perspective. Yeah. I think that's where market research could really Mm. help because it's like, I totally agree. They occupy sort of this middle ground where it's like, it's slightly more than you would pay for your average sheet mask without kind of understanding why, but then they're not branding themselves as premium. So it's like, well, why would I pay for that much? So it was a little confusing, especially in such a hyper-competitive market. But ultimately it was actually really cool because our guest shark, Bethany, had been like, I wore this to the taping. Like I flew here using one of these lace masks. So that was kind of interesting because like we have a a case yet again where the shark had tried it and loved it. And that I think was what influenced her first offer, which was 350,000 for 30% stake in the company. And it was interesting because yet again, we have a founder that was like, that's a little high. And I respect that. The founders countered for 15%. And Lori, the shark that she is, comes out of nowhere, snipes it, instantly accepts the counteroffer and like makes the deal and completely sniped it out of Bethany's clutches. Yes. It's a great moment. While Bethany was counting down to give the founder time to think about her offer. Because she's like, I'm going to put pressure. And Lori's like, nope, I'm going to take the opportunity. I thought that was such a well played out dance of sharkiness. It turned out to be a really good strategy because it seemed that Lori was like their dream shark to work with and like that's great like QVC we love that so they ended up not only getting a more competitive offer but walking away with their dream shark Mm -hmm. which was awesome but a bit of a company update for our folks over at Dermovia Lace Your Face Mm -hmm. since the tank they rebranded their name to just Dermovia which Hmm. I actually think is a really good play just because Dermovia Lace Your Face it's a mouthful right Dermophia has also expanded from just this doily-esque sheet mask. So they've introduced lines of lotions, serums, cleansers, and scrubs. So it is very much like a fully-fledged skincare company now. And as of August 2022, they're doing $4 million in revenue. So they're still very much uh, churning out the masks. But it is that time. We have covered Trunkster, Blenny Blends, and Dermovia Lace Your Face. I know that there are pros and cons to each of the businesses. We'll start with you, Ariel. Yeah. Despite my hot take, the fact that Dermovia was able to expand to a multi-product line, I think, was ultimately the right move. And the fact that they secured distribution so well for being Mm -hmm. so early on, I would definitely give it to you. Demrovia. And John, what's your golden bite? Yeah, I'm going the golden smoothie. I'm putting the botulism concerns aside. <laughs> Next episode, we're going to talk about your botulism concerns. Yes. They're not high enough. <laughs> You'll never go to a Pollock again, I swear, John. I'm going to believe in the blendy oh, and I am all in on them. I think that it will be a tasty little investment for me. I think I'm also Dermovia if you my don't like the botulism blend. talk has. So I think that mine would be also Dermovia. This is like copper cow coffee. Now I have to try it. We'll see. Maybe I'll report back. But it's something that I think has such a huge market. And the fact that they've continued to expand and clearly succeed in that market just shows that there's something there with that business. So they've got my golden bite. All right. Well, that's all I've got. That does it for us this week. I want to thank our Oz behind the curtain, Matthew Brown. 
Additional support for the show comes from Melanie Romero and Robert Hartwig. And thanks to the HubSpot Podcast Network for keeping the mics on. Subscribe to the show. Tell your family, your friends, that guy you walked by in the street the other day. No, not the one with the cutoff sleeve t-shirt. Ugh, pass on that first interaction. The other one, the one with the dog. Ugh, a dog. Okay, that's it for me. See you next week for another bite. Oh, and you're my favorite. Don't forget that. Ha <laughs> ha